Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Uh, so I, uh, I got on uh, Google. Uh, have you ever wondered who supplies Google with all this information? But I went on to Google and I did a little research of the St. Louis Public library system and I ask how many how-to books are there in the St. Louis public resource a public library catalog anybody want to take a guess on how many how-to resources there are in the St. Louis public library catalog 10,000 anybody else zero anybody else There are 43,738 listings of how-to resources. Now, obviously, some of those are like print and audio. I didn't break that all down. But there are almost 50,000 resources of how to do things. So here are a few, if you are interested. Uh, you can go onto that catalog, into that catalog, and find, find out how to get slim. You can find out how to deal with nerves. You can find out how to be funny. So some of you who are struggling with that, get you a book, and you can suddenly be funny. You can find out how to build a time machine. Or train your dragon. those of you that have a dragon. You can find out how not to drown in a glass of water. That might come in handy someday when you're in a restaurant. You can find out how to be perfect. Now here's one you're all clamoring for. You can find out how to catch a mermaid. Ladies, you know this one. You can find out how to change your mind. And it's your prerogative. But you can find out a book. You can actually find a book in the St. Louis Public Library catalog on how to do nothing. Can you believe it? That's just a sampling. I mean, you can go on and on and on through that catalog. Now, I did not find this book that I want to speak on this morning. And that is How to Be Discouraged. I didn't find that book. Uh, Probably has been written, but it's not in the... St. Louis catalog that I saw, but I want, to, I want to speak to you for a few minutes on how to be discouraged. Isn't that exciting? Aren't you glad you got up this morning, came to church, got dressed, cleaned up to find out how to be discouraged? Well, discouraged by definition is a lack of confidence or enthusiasm. That's what you experience when you are discouraged. You have this a sense of a lack of confidence for some reason or a lack of enthusiasm. So I was thinking about that and I will just tell you at the start of this sermon that I'm not just preaching to you but I'm looking in a mirror. This is a two-way deal, okay, because I think this is something we all deal with from time to time. Uh, I doubt if there's anybody in this room that has never been discouraged. Now there some people seem like they're never discouraged but it's it's the plight of man and uh, life. And so I want to talk to you about that this morning. And as I was thinking about causes of discouragement, I find that there's three, and maybe these are just for me. I don't know, but I think they're universal. Uh, 
one of the things that cause us to be discouraged, a lack of confidence or enthusiasm, is comparisons. Comparisons. Now, does anybody besides me compare themselves to other people? Anybody here? Um, uh, some of you didn't raise your hands, but I think probably all of us do at some point or another. If you go on Facebook, it's an easy place to compare yourself to other people. I mean, they've got the perfect life, right? They've got the perfect dinner. They've got the perfect kids. They had the perfect vacation. They have it all. And you're thinking, wow, I never get to go to Italy. My kids don't look like that when they're around me. And the meal I fixed yesterday is nothing like that meal. I mean, and so you enter into this world of comparisons. And what I found out in my own life, because I can be guilty of this, um, I find out that either one of two emotions rise out of comparisons. One is pride. If I feel that I'm better than the person I'm comparing myself to, I kind of have this, well, I'm better than that. Or inferiority. If I compare myself to someone, it's like I'm falling short of what they're doing. And so there's really not a good thing that comes out of comparisons, but it does lead us to a lack of confidence or a lack of enthusiasm. It just kind of sucks the life out of us when we begin to compare ourselves to other people. And this has to do, it goes to the root of our identity, who we think we are. Because when I begin to compare myself with someone else, it affects who I think I am. Everybody with me so far? During the pandemic, when it was really full-blown, um, you know, we, we had to enter into a whole new way of doing things, and churches had to figure out how to do ministry, and pastors were trying to figure out how to go online and how to connect with their people. And people in my role, district superintendents, were also caught off guard by this, and we're trying to figure out how do we minister to our pastors and how do we connect with our churches, and we've not been trained for this, and what do we do? And so many of the people that I looked at or, or talked to, I found out they're doing that, and they're doing that, and oh my, they're doing that, and they give that report, I'm going, I'm not doing that, and it begins to kind of sap the life out of you because you compare yourself to how other people are doing or doing things. The second thing I found is, uh, that leads to discouragement, is uh, paying attention to criticism. Has anybody here ever been criticized? Uh, I have, and you have, and even though, see if you agree with this statement, even though you think it's untrue what they're saying, it still affects how you feel about yourself, okay? And it can lead to a lack of confidence or a lack of enthusiasm. It can begin to make you question who you are and how you feel about yourself. It goes to the root, again, of identity, Criticism is a part of life. Nobody in this room is going to make everybody happy all the time. Somebody's going to criticize you. Somebody has criticized you. I've been criticized. I've probably criticized people. Well, no, I have criticized people. But if we're not careful, that goes to the root of us thinking about who we are and how we think about ourselves. It has to do with identity. The third thing that I found, and this is the last one I want to mention, there's many causes of discouragement, but the third thing that I found in my own life is simply having a lack of confidence, a, lot, a lack of, of really um, being
being confident in what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. And when I'm not confident, it can lead me to being discouraged and thinking I'm not doing this well enough or good enough or as effective as it can be. And it, again, can go to the root of who I think I am, who I feel that I am. And so um, discouragement is a very real part of life. And so the title of this little talk today is How to Be Discouraged, but you know that that's not where I'm going to land. I'm really not hoping that all of us leave here discouraged this morning. Um, You know, that was a great message, Pastor. You discouraged me greatly. That's not my goal, okay? But my goal is really to help you learn how to deal with discouragement and those things that come into our lives that might rob us of the joy and, the, and the, um, the affirmation that we can find in Christ. I, my goal this morning in this message is for you to leave understanding just a little better who you are in Jesus. Because who we think or believe we are in Christ goes to the very basic root of our identity. If we can understand who we are in the eyes of Jesus really understand who Jesus thinks we are and how he feels about us. It will help us deal with comparisons and criticism and lack of confidence. Because if I am safe, secure, affirmed, and believe really that Jesus loves me for who I am, don't miss this, it will affect how you think about others when they think of you differently. Everybody with me? So it's really not how to be discouraged. It's how to be encouraged, okay? So that's the goal of the message. If you have your Bibles, uh, again, I don't have a PowerPoint, but if you have your Bible or your phone, or maybe you have the whole Old Testament memorized, that would be great. Um, But I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, and... uh, this is a, a story, a, a recording of a process that Israel was going through to find a new king. Saul's been the king, and the prophet Samuel has been appointed by God to help with this transition between Saul's reign and the next king. And so they're looking for a new king, all right? And uh, we won't go into all the background of that, but it's this transition that's taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So I'm going to start reading with verse 1. Just read a few verses. But let's try to put yourself in this context that Samuel now has been appointed to go on this hunt for a new king for Israel. And he finds himself at a man by the name of Jesse's house. And Jesse has something like 10 kids. And all of them but two are boys. All right? So he shows up at Jesse's house, and that's where we pick up the story. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now he has... uh, I found this interesting. He has seven or eight sons and two girls. So I have chosen one of these boys to be the king. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. You know, we're trying to replace him, and he's finding out I'm looking for somebody to replace him. He's not going to be very happy about that. And so the Lord gives him some instructions on how to prepare for that. And so um, in verse 6 it says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, that's one of the sons, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, this guy, he's got all the makings of be the next king. Surely it's Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Very important verse in the whole context of our life, okay? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called uh, Abinadab, another son, had him pass in front of Samuel. Can you almost see it's almost like a beauty pageant, you know? Here comes son number two, Abinadab. And the Lord said, uh, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Is this it? Got seven of them. Is this it? Well, Jesse says, there is still the youngest. But he is tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he went. He, he, so he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Thus David was appointed king of Israel. Now, there's one little word here that really changes the whole context, the meaning, the impact, in my mind at least. So, they call for, uh, is there any others? Do you have any other sons? Well, yeah, they're still the youngest. And then he uses the word, but. But, he is tending sheep. We use that word a lot. And what it is, it's a transition word. It's a contrast word. It is used to shift or to contrast a new thought with, with what has been stated already. Okay? And so it's like this bridge to a different thought. Um, I know I should work out. But. I'm just too tired. You see, it contrasts, you know, it's not like, I know I should work out, but I'm going to. That doesn't make sense. But I'm too tired. I'm too lazy. I'm too full. Whatever the contrast is. So in this particular uh, statement, there is the youngest. Want to see him? That's not the implication. The implication is there is the youngest, 
But he's out there. He's just a shepherd. He's doing this job that none of my other sons are doing. They're here acting like they want to uh, audition for kingship. He's out there being a shepherd. Very important concept. Especially in light of the three things I talked to you about that caused discouragement. God said, through Samuel to Jesse, man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. Man looks at the obvious. Man looks at the apparent. Man looks at the visible. God looks at that which you can't always see, but is played out in life. That's how I want you to choose this king. Not because he's tall and handsome, but because of who he is as a shepherd boy. He, according to Psalm 78, will shepherd my people. That word is used in Psalm 78. He shepherded Israel with integrity of heart and skillful hands. The shepherd boy became a king. So, we learn from this text that here David, the shepherd boy, was no doubt compared to Eliab and all those brothers. He's the one that smells like sheep. He's the one that's out there dirty. He's out there, you know, doing the dirty work. These guys are all put together ready for Samuel to come in and audition them. This comparisons. But he's, but he's happened to David. Criticisms. Remember when David, this young lad, went out to meet Goliath? Remember that? And his brothers were huddled behind rocks and in caves, scared to death of this giant Goliath. And David came into the camp to bring them some food. And he said, what's going on here? And they said, oh, this big dude out there is threatening us. And, and he's going to annihilate us. And David said, I'll go. Do you remember they cheered him on? Oh, man, David, we're so glad you showed up. Well, just go out there and give them the what for. You're, you're, the, you're the awesome leader. You go do it. That's not what they said. They said, who are you? What do you think you're doing? You're just a young boy. Get back home so you won't get killed out here. David faced a lot of criticism. A lot of things happen in David's life that is parallel to our lives. But here's what I want you to see this morning. What I want you to see is that statement that says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Because I want all of us to be able to, <coughs> to leave here this morning and go into the situations we're living in, <coughs> understanding that God looks at us differently than people do. God looks at us differently than people do. Now, you may have people in your life that think you are the best thing since sliced bread. You are, you are awesome, outstanding, and incredible. <coughs> Pardon me. But all you have to do is do something they don't like, and then you're not so awesome. 
Everybody been here, done this? Because you see, they look at you often through the eyes of how you make them feel and how you please them. Not on just who you are as a person. But I want you to hear this morning that God loves you because you're you. Not because of your talent or lack of it. Not because, could I get a glass of water? Anybody? Uh, Not because of your your money or lack of it. Not because of your position or lack of it. He loves you just because you're you. And this is a simple, simple truth. But I want you to hear it today because it's so very, very important. Some of you may know the name Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was, uh, uh, he's passed on now, but um, was a great um, speaker and lecturer and uh, he, he has a thing, and you, you can find it on YouTube if you'd like to find it, on um, I Am My Beloveds. And he, he speaks along this line, and he encourages his listeners with these three things. He says, uh, he's talking about identity in Christ, and, which I'm trying to do this morning. And he said, there's three things you need to know. Number one, you are not what you have. Your identity is not based on what you have. Okay, if I could just get that next bigger house, if I could get that, that nicer car, if I could get that promotion, if I could get that, we have this sense that that would give us a more secure uh, identity. But he reminds us we are not what we have, and one reason we are not what we have is because we could lose what we have. And if our, if our identity is in what we have, what happens to our identity when we lose what we have? It can be shattered. It can be, it can be destroyed. But if you have an identity that goes deeper than what you have, then what you have doesn't give you your identity. I think it's great to have things. I'd like to have a 1957 Chevy convertible. If anybody's got one in your garage you don't need, send it my way. But... When I was elected district superintendent 16 years ago, okay, I was a pastor and now I'm doing this. That doesn't increase my worth. If it increases my worth, then my identity is in the wrong thing. Because what happens when I am no longer district superintendent? It could shatter my worth, my identity. So my identity is not when in what I have. It's also not in what I do, which I just talked about. Your identity is not in what you do. Okay? Um, if you've flown on an airplane, what's the, what's the number one icebreaker on an airplane? To your seatmate. So what do you do? Right? So if I'm, if I'm sitting next to Jason, I don't know Jason, we're, you know, cramped in this airplane together, we got a four-hour flight, You know, it wouldn't be unusual. I would like to just ignore everybody and go to sleep. That's what I want to do. Don't talk to me. This is my reprieve. I don't want to talk to anybody. And boy, if you get next to a talker, it's a long trip. But an icebreaker is so. uh, So what do you do? What do you do? Well, I'm this or I'm that or I'm that or this. And and we begin to identify ourselves by what we do. But what happens if you no longer do what you do? If your identity is in what you do, then your identity is going to be shaken. So that's the second thing he says. The third thing he says is, you are also not 
what people say you are. You are not what people say you are. Um, they may they may do this to you. You know what that is? A loser. Um, this is really important to get across to your children because kids can be kind of mean on the playground. Hey, four eyes. Or, you know, hey, whatever. And, and one word, one, one identification of somebody in their young years can just set a whole course of chaos. But it also happens to us as adults. People call us names. People identify as certain things. And if we're not careful, we'll take that on and become identified by that. But you're not what people say you are. He's just a shepherd. He's not one of my, he's not one of my seven picks. He's not one of the seven potential guys. He's out there. He's a shepherd. Yeah, and that's exactly what God wanted was a shepherd. So you're not what you have, you're not what you do, you're not what people say you are. So here's what I want you to, to see as I close this message. Those of you who haven't heard me preach, I close three times. This is the first one. Just kidding, don't panic. But I would like you to see something in the life of Jesus about this. And again, I'm trying to help us all identify who we are in Christ, that we're not what we do, we're not what we have, we're not what people say we are. We have an identity that supersedes all of that because all of that changes. But what he thinks about us doesn't change. So in Matthew chapter 3, um, Jesus is just getting started in his earthly ministry. In fact, um, uh, he comes to be baptized by John, who has been his, the, the, the guy who precedes him, say, you know, talking about the coming of Jesus. And, uh, and we find Jesus in, uh, by the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And it says in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Matthew, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting on him. And a voice from heaven, the voice of God, said, Don't miss this. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see the Trinity in this verse because the the Spirit came in the form of a dove, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we hear the voice of God identifying with Jesus. But this word is very important. This is my son. Identification. My son. Whom I am, in whom I am well pleased. Now, wait a minute. This is before any miracle, any healing, any message... Anything that Jesus did that could be, um, could be described as a, as a successful uh, endeavor or a successful mir- uh, uh, a message or miracle before Jesus became popular because of the healings and all of this. This was at the very beginning before any of that was done. God said, you're my son and I am pleased with you. That's what God thinks of you. 
you are his child, he is pleased with you. Not because of what you do, not because of what you have, and not because of what people say. Just because you're his. I hope that comes through this morning. Because we are bombarded with all kinds of other messages. At home, at work, at school, we hear all these other competing messages to give us an identity. But if you can hear this morning that God loves you, period. Not if, not but, not after, not when, just period. It will help you maintain a healthy identity in Christ in your daily life. So, I want to end my, end my message with three questions. And I've started doing this with my messages. We were, we were at a children's, um, a children's uh, workshop three weeks ago or so. And, and uh, one of the ladies on our district that is a physical education teacher in the school district, one of the school districts in St. Louis, uh, encouraged us to always think with these three questions in mind as we're teaching or giving a lesson. And it's been helpful to me. It helps me in my thinking. So I'm going to share it with you this morning. So I'm going to ask you three questions regarding this message. And the first one is, what do I want you to know? As a, as a, a messenger of the word this morning, to you the hearer, what is it that I want you to know about this message. Here's what I want you to know. That you were chosen by God. Because of who you are. You were chosen by God. Now do you know what it means to be chosen? Now some of you, uh, maybe I should ask this question. Do you know what it means not to be chosen? Some of you, you know, when, 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 when the kids were picking up teams on the playground, you were probably the first one picked because you were fast, strong, athletic, whatever. Do you know what it means to be the last one? And the teams are going to be uneven. And the other team says, you take him, we don't need him. You know how it feels? To not be chosen? But I want you to know you've been chosen. David was chosen by God for a distinct purpose. Jesus was talking to his disciples in the Gospels. And he said, here's one thing I want you guys to know. I want you to remember this. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't start following me because I was the popular thing and you decided to follow me and you chose me to follow. He said, I chose you. Remember when I said, hey, Matthew, follow me. Hey, James and John, follow me. Hey, Peter, follow me. I chose you. To be chosen means to select and after consideration. It doesn't mean to just select. It means you've thought about it, you've worked through it, you've analyzed it, you've looked it over, you've considered the ups and the downs, and you pick anyway. That's what it means to be chosen. I want you to know this morning, you've been chosen. God has chosen you. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Because we don't feel so chosen. Because of how people treat us, or what people have said, or what we have or don't have. 
Let me tell you something. If we were standing in a line, Jesus would choose you. The second thing is, not only what do I want you to know, but what do I want you to understand? And that, that doesn't come across like, now you, you understand that, right? I don't want you, that's not, it's not the authoritative concept. It's, I just want you to get this. I want you to really get this. Knowing you are chosen, I want you to really understand that that is not based on what you have, what you do, or what people say you are. It's based on just who you are. You are chosen by God before you ever did anything good or bad. He chose you. For one of those kids that was the last one chosen, that means an awful lot. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the strongest. But I will tell you this. In those very rare occasions, when one of the macho captains were picking and they said I'll take Mike well I didn't have a chest but I put it out because I was picked I was picked God has picked you so what I want you to know is you've been chosen what I want you to understand is it's not based on what you have what you do or what people say you are and then number three is what do I want you to do what do you take home from this now, I hope you have your Bible with you or, or a phone or something or borrow one or do something because here's what I want you to do for one week. And it's, I, I, won't, I won't call back and ask, ask you or ask Jason to see if you did it. I'm not going to do that. But, but what, some of us, what some of us could stand to do is to begin to reorient our thinking to who God thinks we are. Instead of trying to please people, try to please God. Now, I am, if any of you have been through Strength Finders, has anybody been through Strength Finders? Okay, so they identify you by your characteristics and all that. Well, I'm a woo, and you don't know what a woo is, but woo is W-O-O, winning others over. I want everybody to like me. It's a horrible thing. Every one of those characteristics have a good and a bad side. Now, I want everybody to, to like me, so, you know, I make, I make friends with the waiters and waitresses in restaurants. I, you know, I hardly ever meet a stranger. I, I have that kind of personality. But, boy, if somebody don't like me, it can, it can bother me because I want everybody to like me. Why wouldn't you like me? Right? Loosen up. I'm almost done. That's how I think. I just want everybody to like me, but not everybody does like me. And so I sometimes have a struggle with that. <clears throat> so here's what I want us to do. <clears throat> I want us to begin to ask the Holy Spirit to help us train our minds. You know, the Bible says whatever is good and all that, think on those things. You know, so maybe it'd be a good idea to 
not go to Facebook to find our identity, how many likes we got. Oh, my stars, that drives me crazy. Why didn't so-and-so like my comment? Has anybody here ever scrolled down through that to see if a certain person liked your comment? Yeah. And you know what? It just drives me nuts when they don't. That's not good. Right? Am I right? That's an unhealthy thing to do. So it helped me if I put something on, you like it, would you? It'll help me. It's really not a good thing to do. So what I want us to do is begin to ask the Holy Spirit to retrain our thoughts. And it's going to be by reading this psalm every day for one week. Every day for one week. Okay, it's Psalm 139. So if you have your Bible, I want you just to open it to Psalm 139. And here's, what I, here's the do part of this message. What do I want you to do? I want you to do this. I want you to read this psalm. And I want you to be reminded of who God thinks you are. All right? I'm going to read it. And read it with me, along with me. And see if it doesn't just kind of encourage you. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go uh, up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will hold me fast. Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Let me just point out real quick three things with those last three verses. He's talking about, this is not the voice of a rebellious son trying to get away from his father. Where can I go from your spirit? How can I get out of here? It's not that. He's, he's contemplating, is there any place I go or can go where God won't be with me? Is there any place? And then he illustrates it with three scenarios. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. That means if, if everything is just absolutely phenomenal and this is a high time and a high point, you're there with me celebrating. But if it is hellish, You are there. Your presence isn't dictated by my circumstances. You're with me in all circumstances. Then he says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and hold me fast. If I'm in this transition, if I'm going from the familiar to the unfamiliar, if I'm going to the known to the unknown, if I'm in a time of, of transition and, and, and turmoil and, and adjustment, you're there. If I lose my job, you're there. If I lose my health, you're there. If I lose a friend, you're there. Third thing, 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. If I find myself in a dark, unnerving, depressing situation, and I can't see the hand in front of my face, figuratively speaking, you're there because... My darkness does not block you out because my darkness is as light to you. You see right through it. Um, what time are we supposed to get out? Okay, let me, can I tell you a real quick story that illustrates this for me? Um, I, I fly quite a bit. Used to fly a little more when I was traveling as an evangelist, but um, I was flying into St. Louis um, one day and um, we were in what they call the soup has anybody flown in the soup that means when you look out the window and all you see is like you're flying through a cotton ball you cannot see one thing you, you can't see anything except white that's what they call flying through the soup now a few years before I had been privileged to be taken into the flight simulator at Lambert Airport in St. Louis by a captain of TWA Airlines. They've gone defunct now, but he was a captain and a trainer for TWA. And so he took me into the simulator, and he showed us some things they do to train and to test their pilots. And so the pilots would get in their seats, and Don would stand behind a curtain in the simulator, and he would, on the computer, punch certain scenarios in that these pilots had to respond to okay and uh, um, so they would look out the window and these computer generated images at that time were like they could put in the actual scenario of a if they wanted to go to London or New York or whatever airport it would look just like that out the windows of the simulator and they'd have to fly into these places we actually flew through the arch in a simulator don't go out and say that he flew through the ark. It was a simulator. So anyway, Don, <clears throat> Don would punch these things in for us. We'd be sitting there ready to take off, and it'd start raining or sleeting or snow um, or whatever the case would be. And uh, he said at this point, they were doing some testing, and he said, here's what we're putting our pilots through. He said, we're on the runway. Everything's good. We're taking off. And just at the moment of rotation, that's when they pull back the, the, the yoke, and they lift up off the ground. Right at the point of rotation, we, we, we computerize a blowout of one of the tires, and the rubber flies into the engine, and it bursts into flames. So now we're going down at takeoff speed, and an engine's on fire, and the pilots have to react to that. That happened a few years before. Now I'm flying through the soup, okay? I can't see a thing out there. And my seatmate over here who... Uh, I don't know if he thought he was a comedian or, an, or a positive thinker or what, but he said, just think. There's other airplanes out there. I'm going, oh, yeah, right, great, thanks. You know, and, but I wasn't afraid. Um, you know, I had learned, I'd flown enough that I knew the language of the airplane. If you fly a lot, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can tell, if you're on a three-hour flight, you can tell when you start down. There's this little thing. You say, okay, we're starting to make our approach. Still a long way out, but we're, 
We're doing that. And then you get closer and you hear the flaps and you feel the wheels go down. It's all the language of an airplane. So I'm looking out this window and he's saying, just think there's other airplanes out there. But I'm not sweaty. I'm not nervous because I know what's going on in the cockpit. In the cockpit, those pilots are not up there taking medication because they're nervous because they can't see anything. They're not even looking out the windows. They're watching their instruments. Because those instruments, that radar system that they're trained to observe is not bothered by the fog or the clouds. It sees through it and gives you a sense of reality. That's why you have to follow your instruments if you're a pilot. Because if you think, if you go on visual, you'll get all disoriented. But if you follow your instruments, it'll get you there safely. Way before radar, that's what God was talking about through David here. When the darkness closes in on me, it's not, it's not dark to you because my darkness is as light to you. You see right through it. Okay. For you, verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Let me just point out. Created my inmost being. Knit together in my mother's womb. That's before you got any promotions. That's before you got any big salary. That's before you bought any cool car. That's when you're still in your mother's womb. God thinks you're valuable. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake... I am still with you. All I'm saying, simple little message this morning, maybe to me more than you, is he chose me. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I have. I'm not what people say I am. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Doesn't that encourage you? It does me. So Lord, guide our thoughts today. I'm not sure who this was for today, but maybe me. But would you help us to live a life of confidence, a life of joy, not one dictated by our circumstances or uh, successes or failures or what people say about us, but a life that is immersed in the knowledge that we have been chosen by you. Give us that sense of understanding and worth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit TakeItToTheHeart.com.